You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for leaders taking on new roles. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is Graham Villiers-Tuttle. So first of all, a few words about Graham. He is the Marketing and Innovation Director for East African Breweries Limited, part of Diageo. Now, East Africa is a Diageo powerhouse, the largest beer market by volume in Diageo. Having started his career in Dublin, his expat journey began seven years ago with a move to Indonesia. Graham has packed a lot into his career, managing a joint venture, winning a gold at Cannes, and navigating an off-trade alcohol ban. Surely a brewer's nightmare. With child number three imminent, Graham has generously taken time out to join me on the podcast this morning. So without further ado, Graham, welcome. Thanks, James. Great to be on the podcast. Appreciate it. So where did we first meet? We were arguing about that earlier. Yeah, yeah. I think we must have met um, uh, with my brother, who you who you worked with in Rackets, uh, over a pint of Guinness before... Uh, before a rugby match, and between COVID and uh, baby number three, those times with a nice pint before a rugby match, they feel very far away. So, Graham, as I said in the intro, what stands out versus maybe some of your peers is you've gone on the ex- expat uh, trail. Yeah. So, do you believe that the expat move has accelerated your career? Yeah, no, I think without a doubt, it's been you know hugely helpful for me in my career, and I think it's made me functionally much more competent um, and also given me a ton of leadership stretch. I mean, I came in on the graduate scheme in Diageo 15, 16 years ago, um, and I spent the first part of my career building out my functional depth in Ireland and in Europe, you know, which is a brilliant experience for um, first corporate um, work and first rotations. But I think what's helped me, you know, in my own career and in my development journey is then those steps I've taken outside of, of my home country. And, you know, functionally, I'm, I'm in marketing, commercial. Um, you are never more exposed on your functional strengths than when you're standing in a country where you don't speak the language, you're not aware of things like gender roles, how people socialize. Uh, that g- it gives you a massive functional stretch because you have no subconscious understanding of how the market operates uh, or where the consumer is. So that's always challenging, I think, for for people in marketing and innovation. And then from a leadership point of view, you know, leading teams in different cultures, um, trying to understand what drives and motivates people, that's obviously a huge stretch and, you know, really enjoyed my time across Southeast Asia. But it's really different, you know, to my time in East Africa and trying to get better and quicker at making uh, an impact and leading people in different cultures, you know, has been, has been huge, uh, huge accelerant for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in the value of an expat move. I haven't done a lot myself. The question is not so much necessarily what it gives you as an individual, but is it appreciated within the, uh, within the corporation? Is it a mandatory or do people manage to 
progress up by staying, you know, sort of London, Geneva, Amsterdam, and yeah. and circulating there. Yeah, I think uh, people uh, can, you know, Diageo is one of those organizations where there's a lot of different routes, you know, to progression. And there are certainly examples of people who, you know, haven't taken an expat role or haven't gone for those stretch assignments and have still, you know, really moved at speed um, and progressed well. I think for me, uh, personally, you know, I, probably aware that I'm a broad marketeer, uh, like more commercially biased. And then for me, you know, getting that stretch is really important. And that's why I think that route made a lot of sense in terms of how I'd want to accelerate my career. I'm not a core specialist. I'm not a, you know, a digital expert. So I think how I've tried to, you know, get that breadth is through those international rotations. I think we had a very brief discussion before you went off on one of your one of your expat yeah. moves, and I, I nearly said it. it's like a compulsion. Yeah, you know, for some people it just suits them, and 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 they're going to get the value out whatever happens with career. Yeah. Now the podcast is all about sink or swim. Now there's one sure thing, which is a sink moment when you're abroad <laughs> is even tougher. So do you, do you have any, um, let's say, anecdotes or learnings from your sink or swim experience? I, I guess the most challenging, you know, role I took was in Indonesia. I had, I had moved to Singapore previously, done a couple of years. Singapore feels, you know, very easy in terms of um, cultural stretch and, you know, understanding the market. Um, but my first, you know, executive role um, was in Indonesia. Um, and there were just a lot of um, factors that culminated at once that made that a challenging rotation. I mean, first of all, Indonesia is a super interesting market, but extraordinarily different, for, you know, from what I was used to. It's 17,500 islands. It's 300 languages. It's, uh, you know, 92% Muslim majority. Um, English is not widely spoken. So, you know, every kind of cultural stretch in that move as you're trying to settle into uh, a city like Jakarta, which, you know, has a 20 to 25 million population, depending on the day of the week. Um, So that's one, one big stretch. I think then, you know, we obviously uh, was working with Diageo. We have a great business there, beer and, and spirits. But most of alcohol is purchased in the off-trade, in convenience stores, supermarkets, corner stores in Indonesia. Um, and yeah, one, one Tuesday morning, about six months into the role, uh, the government announced a ban of the sale of alcohol in the off-trade. So that just knocked off about 70% of our numeric distribution overnight. Um, so extraordinarily challenging. Um, and then a few a few months after that, um, the the long serving general manager there, who really knew the market brilliantly and was really ingrained in uh, in the culture and in the community, uh, he made a move and actually left the organisation. So he had a fairly new executive team, uh, no general manager, and then kind of a, a massive commercial crisis. And you know, I reflect so let, back on that. Yeah. Let, let, let me just let, take a pause there because, in a way, even even me listening, like a twenty-five million city, all the languages, and then from sort of your the the basic of what you're doing every day is now severely challenged. Yeah. So, so, so what what did you do? I, I mean, I think I probably did on reflection. You know, all of all of the wrong things. So we we quickly, you know became quite internally focused so you know the the unspoken agenda was okay let's let's 
get time uh, for us to figure this out locally. And that means pushing, you know, the company uh, away. Um, so there was a, a genuine kind of inward leaning. We'll fix it. We'll sort it out. Um, we'll push the company away so we get some space to, to organize ourselves. So, you know, you can imagine why the impulses were there, but completely, you know, completely not the right way to manage it. And then I think from a from an exec point of view, it was also interesting for me because, you know, my assumption was, well, this is a corporate relations issue. You know, this is this is this is very far from a marketing issue. But you know, the reality of how the organization responds is actually marketing, certainly in the Azure, is that engine of how we're going to get out of this, you know, what's our strategy forward? Uh, how do we want to shape the trade? So um my initial reaction was, you know, to be uh, kind of a, an observer and then very quickly got uh, pushed into, uh, you know, how are we going to, to crack this? And it's, you know, you can imagine why all the impulses were there uh, to respond like that. But, uh, you know, obviously hindsight, we had a huge opportunity to be more demanding of, you know, the overall uh, organization, get a lot more help, get a lot more support. I suspect all of us needed, you know, um, a bit of clarity around, you know, coaching, focus, prioritization uh, in terms of the, the exact team that were there at the time. But we were running quite hard and the idea of, you know, taking time to lift your head up and uh, indulge in uh, some coaching was, you know, was kind of far from uh, the exact's mind at that stage. If you're enjoying the podcast, and would like to test your own readiness for the hot seat, then take the Leadership Readiness Scorecard. Details in the show notes and on swimnotsink.com. You, you mentioned that keep keep sort of organization out or circle the wagons as a yeah. team. What was it that motivated that? Because that's not necessarily obvious to me why you would choose to do it that way. Yeah, I think probably it's just fear of failure, right? I think, you know, the 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 impulse was we've got to get back into, you know, performance uh, growth and, you know, this is a hurdle, but we'll figure it out. And, you know, we must be seen to be performing. Um, and it's interesting because when you think about when I related to COVID, you know, I do think I've been just personally so much more comfortable managing through COVID because it feels like almost a repeat of some of the challenges we had in Indonesia. Um, but, you know, I think fear of failure, um, maybe fear of being found out um, and a desire to just deliver the number uh, rather than, you know, get really into how we're going to move the market forward um, would be kind of my reflections on the time. In the way you tell the story that I like is... You said that you were thinking it was somebody else's job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and one of the images that I always talk about in in my work is being in the hot seat. And you quickly find that, even though you didn't realize it, yeah. you were in the hot seat. So, how well did you adapt to that that role? Yeah, I mean, I think we we got there, but um, it it probably the circling the wagons is a great description. Uh, you know, by circling the wagons, we probably stunted ourselves by about six months in reality. So, you know, what we, what we eventually realized was, you know, we needed to have a better understanding of where that purchase opportunity was that was removed by the new legislation. We figured out quickly a good opportunity to build a new type of channel and commercial route to market. Um, 
and we figured out a more sustainable way to build out the business. Um, but all of that really came about because we were then at that stage pulling in better uh, capability from the global organization. We were pulling in you know, better advice from adjacent categories and we were, we were getting support with better uh, investment for research and agency partners. So had we been a bit more upfront, you know, when the crisis occurred, I think we could have accelerated the recovery, you know, certainly six months uh, quicker. Um, and yeah, I think the initial impulse to circle the wagons was was definitely the wrong one. And so being in the hot seat felt great when things were moving back in the right direction, but felt pretty horrific when, uh, you know, when we were still, uh, we were still trying to manage it ourselves. As a broader lesson, maybe for the audience, you know, we're talking about Indonesia and a, and a ban in a certain part of the trade. Yeah. Was it the case that the ASIO had faced something similar in other markets and that you could get the playbook from somewhere else? Or was it truly a unique thing that you had to solve it locally yourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think there were definitely things we could have picked that would have been helpful. And, and that did turn out to be the case, you know, as we got more engaged with the wider organization. Um, it was unique in its scale. I mean, to lose 70% numeric distribution was, you know, was a nightmare. Um, and it was unique in its complexity in terms of, um, it's not like Tesco have delisted, you know, one one product or a range. Um, so you know how to, how to have that conversation and move back in. The, the, the losing an entire channel uh, was 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 really complex. Um, I think though as well, we could have looked at adjacent categories, you know, um, that have faced significant retail challenges. And there were enough connections between Diageo and, uh, you know, similar companies and adjacent category companies that we could have quickly built uh, a better understanding of how to respond. So yeah, I think the impulse to go inwards and shrink rather than share the issue share the problem get advice you know take a moment to pause realize that you are going to have some significant short-term performance volatility but be comfortable with that because you're confident you can build back um those uh, those i think are the signature challenges okay. that yeah we kind of failed on up front and there was one phrase which you mentioned in our in our pre-chat, which which I really like, which was when you sink, you sink alone. <laughs> you do. Yeah, you do. And I think COVID's been like that, right? It's like the tide goes out and you know, you can really see um see what other parts of the business haven't been firing. So um yeah, I think in that in that situation, you know, I was relatively new in my role. Um, so you also feel a huge amount of personal accountability for business performance. Um, and if any other part of the business isn't holding up well, when you lose that percentage of distribution overnight, that's also very exposed. So you really do, yeah, you really do sink alone. Um, but part of that was also because we had failed to, you know, share the issue, share the problem, make it everybody's responsibility and opportunity. Um, and, and that I think is, yeah, it's the biggest reflection. I take away from it. Good. So that's Indonesia. Are there any other sink or swim things which are current or past? Yeah, I mean, COVID is obviously uh, a, a challenging time for the industry uh, that that we're in, that I'm in. Um, but I, you know, I I do think it's got a lot of parallels with the Indonesian issue. You know, losing access to channel, losing understanding of where the consumer is going 
losing a grip on um you know delivering your numbers uh i i think you know what helped me personally in in managing covid is is just that experience of managing volatility which i do think is a muscle that you get from doing consistent developing market um rotations you just build that muscle so you get a bit more comfortable managing volatility and i think the fact that it was a global issue meant that it was a shared issue. So everybody was connecting and discussing and advising and coaching and building together to, you know, some kind of critical outcomes on, on how best to manage. Um, so I think, you know, I, I hope I will look back on COVID as a, a swim moment because of, you know, what's come before and how I've kind of compounded um, learning around that. Um, but I, I think part of the COVID response that was super helpful in East Africa was just a very quick definition of what performance means in a COVID context. And actually just galvanizing that it's about winning market share. It's about beating the competition. It's not about a monthly number. It's not about um, necessarily a profit delivery. That clarity across the organization has really helped us, I think, to manage um, through what's been a, a very messy time with a lot of clarity and simplicity. So everything you say makes sense. The only thing that I'm curious, genuinely curious on is when you call up and say, you know, we've missed a number for the month or the quarter yeah. or the or the rest of the year. While everyone understood the macro environment, how was that received? And how comfortable did you feel delivering that news? Yeah, I think we felt highest levels of discomfort if we weren't delivering share because that that was a demonstration that the competition are doing something better than us you know in a channel or in a category um and that you know that dials up the heat in the conversation and, and creates a lot of positive pressure but you know genuinely i think we've taken a, a quite a long-term view on uh on covid um and that's been very helpful and well understood so at the start of uh the pandemic it was about Define what the performance outcome is. It's about market share. Make sure we're managing employees' health and well-being well. And then quickly it became about what are we going to do with the trade? Um, because the trade is, you know, our most vital stakeholder and under enormous pressure themselves. Um, and it was interesting. It was a real demonstration of how we were managing things more over the medium to long term that there's been a lot of trade investment announcements from Diageo, also from Heineken in different parts of the world. Um, and I think that is it's also a good signal internally that you know we're serious about this not being a month-to-month -month recovery plan. This is about you know more medium to long-term focus. So you know you always feel uncomfortable when you miss the number. Um, but if you're delivering share, I think that that took some of the heat out of the conversation. And talking purely as a consumer, I think the sympathy, the sympathy of the public is really with the the trade or the public, yeah. right? Because we get, you know, it's very very overt. Yeah. While yeah, no one probably thinks about the suppliers to the trade. Yeah. Like yeah. themselves or or the farmers, <laughs> eh? Like we're buying in East Africa, we're buying off you know sixty five thousand farmers. Um. So the the knock on impact across the value chain is massive. Um. But the trade in terms of number of people employed. Uh, a number of businesses impacted the trade here has been yeah has been badly affected yeah uh, and that reminds me that you said that it, like east african breweries is a is a real not a not a blue chip it's a gold chip yeah. in uh, yeah okay 
So then let, let's let's move on from 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 that to the topic of diversity. Yeah. Which A is a it's a big topic, obviously. Yeah. At the minute. But B, one on which you've got some interesting interesting views. So you're at risk of you're male, mm-hmm. you're pale, but you're not yet stale. <laughs> yeah, it depends on you. Yeah, right? no, yeah. yeah, yeah. What does diversity mean to you and where have you seen it, uh, the benefits of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So, I mean, like diversity is hugely important um, for Diageo. It's a big pillar uh, uh, that Diageo is driving and we're very proud to be one of the most diverse FTSE 100 companies, both at exec level and all the way way down the organization. I think for me, where I see the benefits a lot is – uh, before I was in, in my current role, I ran um, the Guinness uh, brand in Africa. So I was part of the Guinness Global Brand Team looking after Africa. Half of all the Guinness in the world is sold in Africa. Um, and in that role, you know, I was fortunate enough to build a team that where everybody had emerging market experience uh, and everybody had done uh, rotations in different parts uh, of the emerging market world, Asia, LAC, Africa, et cetera. Um, and that, I, I, I still look back on that team as one of you know the best teams I'd ever worked with. They had diversity of ethnicity, we had diversity of gender, but also the team brought a ton of diversity of thought. So how people approached uh, challenges, how people, uh, the speed at which people worked, uh, the drive that people brought into their role, um, that was really uh, balanced by their different experiences and their different, you know, their different stints, particularly in emerging markets, which was really applicable, you know, into the African context. So their ability to manage volatility, their ability to think creatively, uh, to deliver business outcomes, and also their comfort level dealing with senior stakeholders, dealing with unusual situations when in markets was was very very high, um, and that's the angle of diversity that I think you know I'm always conscious of when building a team of course diversity of ethnicity diversity of gender but if if everybody is you know spiking at the same strengths as each other i think you do lose uh, a lot of potential impact across a team so that diversity of thought that self-awareness of building a team with diversity of thought i think is key for me you know what you say makes perfect sense to me how is that measured because the other factors are easy to measure, right yeah Gender ethnicity. How is diversity of thought measured, or is it, and how is it encouraged or developed? Where I've where I've really been able to action it is when I've been building my own self awareness. So um, my bigger transitions from, let's say, Indonesia to work on Guinness Africa, and from Guinness Africa to now uh, uh, leading the marketing in East Africa. There's a lot of transition management that happens before you take those roles with executive coaching, with reflection and analysis, um, and with assessments. And, you know, through those assessments, you know, I'm very aware of, you know, my own strengths and development areas. So um, I think that gives you then the opportunity to go, okay, if I am high drive, high EQ, um, then I need to build a team around me that also balances some of those spikes out. Yeah. Not to not to slow things down, but to have a more complementary, you know, team attacking challenges. So it's for me, it's about going with a deep level of self-awareness and then not being afraid to recruit people who have very different strengths. Um, and not being able to recruit people who will definitely overshadow you in some of their skills. I think that's, you know, that's a massive uh, positive for the total team. 
Okay. Well, that's for anyone who's going for an interview with you in the future. <laughs> they, 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 know what, they know what you're looking for. So that's, <laughs> that, that, that's good. So, Graham, we talked that, that you're you know, currently a trade or a marketing and innovation director right now. But clearly, you're looking forward. You're preparing for the hot seat. Now, whether that's brand or, or commercial, is there anything that you're doing actively sort of outside your current role? Yeah. To prepare yourself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, the two things I've got more uh, deliberate about in this role are uh, mentoring. So um, I have, uh, you know, a couple of people who we have a really intentional mentoring relationship. Um, those people wouldn't be in my team or direct reports, but more talent around the region um, that we want to develop into future marketing directors. And that's helped me, you know, a lot with how I mentor my own team, how I coach, how I uh, focus on talent development. I think, you know, when you're mentoring people, you get a ton of um, benefit yourself from that relationship. Consequently, that's made me much more, you know, uh, intentional about who I'm being mentored by and what kind of conversations I'm having with uh, more senior people inside and outside the organization. Um, and then the other piece is actually around coaching. I'm, you know, formal uh, formalizing uh, coaching accreditation because, you know, increasingly aware that a huge amount of my time is spent on coaching and development. Um, and, uh, you know, just want to be sure that I'm fully equipped on that. And, you know, as I'm moving roles, I'm finding that, you know, obviously you get bigger teams, but you also get much more networked relationships. So being able to have impact very quickly um, through, you know, better skill at coaching, I think is going to be a big unlock for me in the future. So as, as, as we come to the end, two, two last questions I have for you. The first one is, so sort of what's the what's the end game? Where, where where would you like to end up? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I always talk about uh, impact, right? So maximizing maximizing impact. Um, so I mean, I'm commercial marketeer. I think at the end, I'll be pivoting towards hopefully a general management style role, um, and then the road to get there is probably complex to navigate but the great thing is you know opportunity to soak up experience and commercial breadth and that's what you know i've really enjoyed about these international roles massive stretch and leadership skill massive stretch on uh, on your functional depth but ultimately you learn a ton and i say you know in east africa for sure every day is a school day every day something is surprising you or you know you're understanding something uh, more more complex and more more giving yourself more depth in the organization so yeah i think ultimately you know uh, pivot towards general management is uh, is appealing um but then it's just making sure you don't sink right when you're there that you've built up enough expertise around it. Yeah, well, if you've if you've built the foundation, yeah. you know, as you say, if you go slow and you, you you've truly learned it, then yeah, there's clearly some luck 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 involved. So the final question: It's Graham Villiers Tuttle. So the double barrel name does it help or not? <laughs> you know, no, it definitely doesn't help. Uh, I remember uh, my first interview was with uh, in Diageo was with a guy called Johnny Cahill, who's now CMO for Heineken in America. Um, and Johnny said to me, you know, I really, I saw your name and I was so looking forward to grilling you um, <laughs> because I thought I would hate you. Uh, so no, the name doesn't help. Uh, I, I actually, I just end up going by GVT, which makes me sound like a cheap Chinese smartphone. Um, but, uh, but I embrace it. Um, so no, not, not a help at all. 
Ah, brilliant. Now I know Johnny from from uh, from before. So ah, that's brilliant. A, yeah, I can. Well, that's good. You're polarizing. So you know, that's the uh, marketers. <laughs> yeah, marmite. Well, look, Graham, a real pleasure. And uh, as we said at the start, best best luck uh, with number three. I suppose that's the most important thing, right? That's it. That's it. Thanks, James. Thanks a million. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.